sorry, let, let me get my cup of tea. Deliberate time wasting. <laughs> Let's go. Hello, everyone. I'm Colin Schindler, and I'm welcoming you to another edition of Football Ruined My Life, the podcast series that looks with favour on the quality of life in British football before 1992. And today... I'm going to be joined, as usual, by my companions at arms, John Holmes from Leicester, and from Fulham, Mr Patrick Barclay. And together we're going to be talking about something that does occur to people of our age quite a lot, which is that in the whole history of England's triumphs and disasters of the World Cup, there is one year which seems to me to be much undervalued, and it's not 1966, which is over-mythologised but 1970, when we should have won the World Cup, but didn't. Am I wrong in thinking that the 1970 side was actually better than the side that won it? I think it possibly was, although I don't think they'd have won, because the Brazilian side in 1970 were probably the best side the world has ever seen. That was the side of Pelé in his prime, of Tostal, of Gerson, of Jairzinho, of Rivellino, of Roberto Carlos and so on. They were a fantastic side, but we probably should have got to the final that year. And that side that had some possibly more skillful players than the 1966 side. Ray Wilson was a great fullback, but Terry Cooper was a more adventurous fullback. That side also had Francis Lee, who was certainly a more exciting player than Roger Hunt, less utilitarian. Martin Peters, who was a very young player in 66, was in his prime in 1970. And Bobby Charlton was still at the height of his career. And I dare say Alan Mullery was a more creative player than Nobby Styles. Don't forget, in 1970, England had in fact played Brazil in the group stages and they lost 1-0, but they could have won it. Oh, I yes. still remember Jeff Astle missing an open goal towards the end of the game. That's true. I mean, it's great, you lads. I, I love the way you summarise everything, leaving me with absolutely nothing to say. <laughs> but no, you're quite right. That was a great match. You know, I think more even than Banks's save or than Astle's miss, we remember the embrace at the end of the match between Pelé and Moore. I think that's one of the most beautiful depictions of sportsmanship in the history of photography, I would and say. And Pelé applauding Banks' save as well. Yes, the same thing. It almost reminded me of two great heavyweight boxers who, at the end, after knocking seven bells out of each other for 15 rounds, they fall into each other's arms in mutual respect. It was like that. Somebody, I think, used the phrase, might have been our old friend Hugh McIlvanny, the great journalist who used the phrase football for adults. Well, that match, that group game, was football for adults. But like John, I think the 1970 Brazil was the best international team that ever played, possibly the best team that ever played. When you look at old football, and I'm thinking of maybe the 1960 European Cup final between Real Madrid and Eintracht Frankfurt, sometimes when you look at the things, your memory has played tricks and the football's a little bit looser than it was. But if you watch the 1970 Brazilians, it looks as good now as it did then. So in a sense, the fact that the teams were so close in that group match does 
make the question legitimate of whether England could have won that World Cup with the 1970 team. Was it better than the 1966? Yes, because it played to an equally high standard in every match except the closing stages of the match that saw their elimination at the hands of West Germany. And they weren't at home. They did have distinct home advantage in 1966, notably against Argentina, where the referee refereed to, shall we say, in the English argot rather than the Argentine. 1966 is interesting, although, again, as I say, I think we over-mythologised that particular competition. But the country didn't catch fire in those group games. The country only caught fire with that match you were mentioning, Paddy, against Argentina. It was a very dull nil-nil draw against Uruguay that opened the tournament, damp squib. And then it looked like Mexico might go the same way, saved by that fabulous goal by Bobby Charlton, one of his great goals of all time, no doubt. And then the rather nasty win over France 2-0 in the last group game, distinguished by Nobby Stiles going off to ruin their best player, Jacques, was his name Jacques Simon or Jean Simon? Yeah. Played at the White City, wasn't it, that game? That's right, that's uh, exactly right, it was. It sums up where football was at that period, Colin, because anybody could apply for tickets. I can remember my dad getting the application at home and sitting down and you could apply for whatever region you wanted to. It was expected, actually, that we would apply for the Midlands region. But we applied for Wembley because it was known that's where England were playing. And it was easy enough. The M1 had been open a few years then. So you could get down. My dad, being the trader he was, managed to get a local residence sticker for (laughs) Wembley, which meant we could park virtually next to the ground. And he got it down to a fine art. The first game I actually went to physically that World Cup was the Argentina game. We broke up school the day before, I think. And we went, and of course, the World Cup was much later then. The final wasn't until late-ish in July. July 30th, yeah. And all the games weren't sold out. And and because there was greyhound racing at Wembley, as I mentioned earlier, we played at the White City. I'm actually talking about the country as a whole. You know, I do have a problem with the way this country goes bonkers every time there's a major competition. But the reverse was happening in 66, despite all the promotion for the fact that we were hosting it. The competition never caught light until that terrible, brilliant game against Argentina, who are probably the better side. If they bothered playing football rather than kicking everything that moved, they could well have won that game. It was a damn close-run thing. Paddy, in your eerie in Scotland, did you watch any of this stuff? In 1966, I was actually on my way to Manchester to begin a career in journalism. And... I can remember I was supporting England. Oh, God, how did I? Ever since then, you know, being among the English and having them take the piss out of me all the time <laughs> for Scotland's perceived shortcomings. You know, I hate England winning at anything, absolutely anything. Tiddly wins, you know, I support anybody against them. But I remember supporting England. No, I watched it. But I, I don't remember pubs sort of being... There were no televisions in pubs in those days. No. People did not watch in groups in those days. Right. I think the groups came about much, much later. The 1990 World Cup was much more the World Cup of groups and people gathering together. Because yeah. I can remember the semi-final 
of the World Cup in 1990, Italia 90, there yeah. were pictures of the M1 being deserted and Westminster Bridge and everything. Yeah. Yet the viewing figures on the television said, I think it said 38 million or something like that. I think the figure was much higher than that that year because people had started to gather together in groups to watch games. Yeah. That wasn't the tradition. In 1966. Hang on, John, because people did do that in the 50s simply because only one person in the street had a television set. Yeah. And you went to their house to watch the cup final. So yeah. there was a group thing. But the 60s was the great decade of expansion where people got their own televisions Correct. and rented them from Radio Rental. Well, then you would have proud possession in your own home of your own telly. You didn't need to go next yeah. door, so you didn't. So you're right in that sense. People did watch. Well, I, I didn't, Colin, because I obviously had cheap digs in Manchester. So I, I wasn't aware of these great lines at Wollstonehome because for me it was a silent movie because I was watching it <laughs> through the window of a closed TV shop. I, I'm not sure if it was White and Swales, you know, Peter Swales uh, and the yes, old man said each other, or a Rumbelows, but it was one or the other in Manchester. So Did you I... collect much money in your hat? <laughs> Funnily enough, the streets were sparsely attended, so obviously some people had tellies. In fact, obviously lots did by 1966. You know, it was certainly memorable, and, and the thing I can remember, it was probably the, the last time I ever supported England at anything. Famously, Dennis Law was playing golf that afternoon, wanted to get yeah. as far away from the game as he possibly could. Yeah, well, you see, poor old Dennis had been living among the English since he was 15, when he came down to Huddersfield from Aberdeen. So he'd been having his ears bashed by that lot for all that time. And of course, it's going to turn you against them. I love the English, really. My two children are Mancunians. No, I love the English people, but I like them with their mouths turned down. On match day, exactly. But, John, again, I'm going back to this because I think it's really important. I want to stop the mythology. Do you share my feelings about it was only after Argentina when the reality seemed to grab hold of people who weren't football supporters? It's obviously football supporters watched all the England matches, but the country as a whole didn't galvanise until the second half of the tournament. Yeah, and they were waving Union Jacks. Yeah. They weren't not, waving. Not red crosses, yeah. And, of course, if you look back to the World Cups, in 58, all four home nations qualified, yeah. even though it was 16 countries in, which is fairly extraordinary. And, in fact, mm. it was the two unfancied countries, i.e. Northern Ireland and Wales, that got mm. the furthest yeah. in 58. So, in 1966, we won it. And I suppose what I'm asking was... Before we get on to 1970 and what happened in between, that day of beating Germany, that moment of the third goal, was it in or not? I mean, the equalising goal in the last minute of normal time, it's wound its way into, seared itself into our brains. It's part of the collective memory of this country. It was a very dramatic game. Every week on the Premier League now, because you're watching every game, there are extraordinary incidents going on. It's the drama of the game. You know, we say football, bloody hell. It is the ultimate drama. That's why it's so brilliant on television. And that was, in many ways, for a lot of people, the first time they'd seen all that excitement, the last-minute equaliser, the controversy, people running on the pitch. As we know, some people thought it was all over. And all the rest of that. It was great drama, great entertainment for a very, very big television audience. And a lot of the public got turned on to football after that because the attendances shot up in the aftermath. Did it sustain, through the 66-67 season, was the feel-good factor sustained through 
increased attendances were more women going because women have become attracted to the game through the television of the World Cup. Yes, it was. It did create a boom in football. But John made a very good point about the drama of that match. And it was the culmination of, in my opinion, one of the worst World Cups ever played. Terrible World Cup. A World Cup out of which Pelé was kicked almost nakedly. But it did culminate in probably the best match, even including Korea against Portugal. Yeah, it probably culminated in the best match. And I can't think of another World Cup that's culminated in the best match of the tournament. No. no, Not not in terms of quality football, but in terms of all the things that we are now told by the television companies that we watch football. Of course. However, I want to put in two things here that, that I do remember very clearly from 67 onwards. Do you remember there was the chanting of Brazil, Brazil in mm-hmm. 66? Mm-hmm. And the best of my knowledge, and I'm prepared to be corrected, that was a kind of watershed moment where crowds got together and actually sang songs together collectively. I'm not outside of Wembley before the FA Cup final, which was an organised thing, with the man in the white coat, I don't remember crowds singing like that or chanting like that before 1966. The answer is that that was seen on television. Before that, there were clubs who had songs, weren't there? I think Birmingham City had Keep Right On to the End of the Road or something like that. Norwich City had a song. Yeah, yeah, On the Ball City. That's right. There weren't the chanting and so on. It was only after that that these collective chants and so on took off. Stoke City had this stupid thing. They sang Zigazaga. Peter Turson in 1967 wrote a play called Zigazaga for the local repertory theatre in Stoke-on-Trent. But the zigger had been taken from the chant. So I didn't create the chant, it was the other way around. The the chant that came first. Where did boing, boing come from? I mean, for goodness sake. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of daft, but relatively benign. For example, I remember when, I think it was Inter, came to play at Anfield, and the witty Scousers chanted, go back to Italy, go back to... But it wasn't vindictive it was just you know you're the opposition so you know yes it wasn't yes, yeah. it wasn't like taunting them about a disaster or a loss no, of life no. or something which you might get now but you bring up something negative and i want to say that my very first experience of being on the terraces when there was violence was august 1967 mm-hmm. and it was at stoke city it was mm-hmm. at the victoria ground and mike summerby and and their left back called bentley something bentley and got themselves into such a state of, of constant kicking and fighting and bashing each that it spilled into the crowd. And there was suddenly somebody about five yards away being led by the police out of the ground with his face covered in blood. I had never mm. seen that in a football match before. Mm. It goes on, obviously, for the 70s, it becomes the decade of hooliganism. But now, are we able to link the growth stimulated by the World Cup and television with the increased incidence of hooliganism that was starting in the late 60s. Of course, everything is led by television in sport, copycat behaviour, the whole idea of the crowd playing a part in the game. I can remember Ron Atkinson saying, oh, you're our 12th man. 
And somebody at the time wrote, this is really silly because you're encouraging them to make pitch invasions. Early in the 60s, there were pitch invasions. And before that, they were actually good-natured. Yes, exactly. Everybody can remember, you know, Ronnie Radford, who died recently, the invasion at Hereford. It wasn't an invasion to intimidate the opposition or anything like that. It was exuberance. And then there was that wonderful incident in the 66 Cup final when Everton scored the third goal, came back from 2-0 down, and the Everton fan ran on the pitch and was pursued by three policemen. The television followed it. I can remember watching it with my schoolmates, and we were laughing it like was hell. It was considered humorous, yeah. But that, of course, then led other people to do it in a less benign way and so on. And pitch invasions became much more sinister. And that was TV, wasn't it? Back to the football. Between 1966 and 1970, certain changes were made. Certain players dropped out, other players came in. Do you think, John, that Alf was too faithful to his 66 World Cup winning side for too long? No, I think he made changes. George Cohen went, Ray Wilson went, Nobby Styles went. Jack Charlton Jack just Charl- went. Brian Labone played yes. at that period. Brian Labone was unfortunate and not to have played before. Brian Labone was a terrific centre-back, arguably a better player than Jack, but he didn't have the height and so on. Alan Clark came in. Yes, the other one who was dropped was Roger. For, for Fanny Lee. So you can't claim that was a backward step. Lee was a better player than Roger Hunt. Mullery was a better player than Styles felt he was allowed to be a much better player creatively, as I think you mentioned earlier. Tommy Wright, probably the most under-remembered player ever to play for England, was a super player. He was a dirty sod. But he could play. I'm not saying George Cohen couldn't, and George wasn't a dirty sod, but Wright certainly wasn't a step down from George Cohen. And George... Keith Newton played in that World Cup, did yeah. he not? Keith Newton was superb, could play right back or left back, played for Burnley, but then went to Everton, I think. Yeah. yeah. Keith Newton was a thoroughbred. So, all in all, it was a much more exciting team. When we went to Mexico, I remember us feeling very confident that we could win it. Yes, Brazil were a great side. Or... You were the holders. But we were going as, if not favourites, then certainly as joint favourites. We were a really seriously competitive team going out to Mexico, and we thought we could win it. Yeah. Well, you had two world-class players and a lot who were on the verge of it. I mean, you never know who the world-class players are until after the final. There were a lot of players who who were on the edge. Charlton and Moore were already of unquestioned World class and Banks was the best keeper in the world. Of course, sorry, I missed out Banks. So you got three world class players plus a few who fancied themselves. Ball, for example, must have felt that this would be when he was finally recognised as being up there with the others. And also, the other thing that people never quite take into account about 1966 is that Moore was raw at that time. Moore was only 25 years of age. Because he was a captain, people thought he was a mature player. He was 25. He went to Mexico at 29. Having been under house arrest for... for, for well, a yeah, it wasn't ideal preparation, as the journalists would have written. Yeah, that's true. But at 29, you know. I think we have to bring that into it, because one of the reasons you can only admire Bobby Moore was the way he played against Brazil in that Guadalajara group game. Having just come out of house arrest, yeah. he was arrested wrongly, as it transpired, as we all knew, 
in Bogota for allegedly stealing a bracelet from a gift shop in the hotel in which the England team was staying. Mm -hmm. And this was a hoo-ha that involved major diplomatic consequences for not just Colombia and England, but for the wider world. It was a huge event. Bobby Moore, of all the man who wiped his hands on the carpet before shaking hands with the Queen in 1966 so he shouldn't dirty her white gloves. The idea that he was some kind of criminal was an affront to every single person in this country. That's true. There was a theory that in fact the item of jewellery was in fact stolen and that Moore took responsibility because it was one of the younger players yes, who had done it. I've heard that. And that is a sign of how Moore saw his captaincy and how he was as a person. He was taking responsibility for the team. He was a senior player, as you've said, Paddy. Yeah. The players that remained from 66 mm. were much better players. You've mentioned Alan Ball. Alan Ball was only, what, 19 at the time? Of Correct. Time. Martin Peters was very young. Jeff Hurst made his debut against Argentina yeah. in the World Cup. So those four players were much more mature. Banks was a better keeper probably in 70 than in 66. But that was a more mature team. Mm. There was a Euros, uh, the first European Championship that became the Euros was in between the two, those two. Correct. And England got to the, was it third place? They got third place. They lost in the semi-final in that game, rather unluckily, as I recall. Was it? Yeah. Was that when Alan Mulder was sent off? Was he the first player? First yeah. England player ever to be sent off in a competitive game. Is that true or not? I um, don't remember, but I do remember that they played then superbly in the third and fourth place final, yeah. which was then a game. Those third and fourth place finals never really took off no. and died. Well, not actually not until 1990, which was the death knell when England played in the yeah. third and fourth place final. In the modern day, third place matches are an absolute disgrace. But in those days, it was an honour. It was like getting a bronze medal yes. at the Olympics. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think they should do what boxing they don't make the defeated semi-finalists in olympic boxing punch no. hell out of each other they give them a bronze each and that's yeah. what they should do in football but you make a good point that the players who'd won the world cup they were older and better but the conditions you mentioned before the conditions and you moved on to the quarterfinal and they were beaten by germany but interestingly i just looked this up and in the england brazil game which as you mentioned before england finished strongly in and were considered a bit unlucky not to get a one-all yeah. because Astor missed an open goal. Now, in the 63rd minute of that game, Charlton was substituted, replaced by Bell. Yeah, Alf has been criticised for replacing Charlton in the Germany game. And I've just learned something, that he did exactly the same substitution in the Brazil game, and it worked. That's interesting because I don't think Charlton played, Bobby Charlton played in the... Czechoslovakia game that came in between mm-hmm. the Brazil game. So and maybe he was carrying an injury. And again, I would have to check this. But my recollection about the Germany game was that the key substitution was Jürgen Grabowski. Yeah, he came on on the wing. On the right and wing. did really well. Grabowski was devastating. I think it was his crosses that... Bonetti couldn't deal with. Well, LeBone was beaten in the air. There was a cross from Grabowski that was headed back. Who was a few inches shorter than... uh, Indeed he was, but he had spring heels. He did, yeah. But what I remember from that game is that for 60 minutes, England were untouchable. 
Yeah. When that second goal went in at the beginning of the second half, Martin Peter scored to make it 2-0. Yeah. You just felt that was it. England don't lose games from that position. They simply no, no, don't. No. And you could afford to take Charlton off. There was going to be a semi-final. Correct. They wanted to keep the players fit. They had, by that point, begun to take notice of environmental factors. Yes about the altitude. You remember in 1968, the Olympics in Mexico, it was altitude came into the fact. And I believe it's hotter in Mexico at that time of year than it is in uh, Qatar, round about the World Cup when it's played in the winter. And I think England's second kit, they'd take note, they used to play in red as the second kit, as we know. Mm -hmm. They'd switch to light blue by that stage because it wasn't so heat absorbing. Mm -hmm. So they were beginning to take notice of that. So I think Alfred probably being given information that Charlton is this age, you know, he can't wear a hat. He's absorbing all this heat through yeah. his bald head. Yeah. Paddy, that's a go at you. Your writing always deteriorates in the second half in a <laughs> hot climate. But he had taken notice of this and he took Charlton off to rest him and mm. so on and so on. Mm. Substitutes were fairly new. Yes, it had worked in a match against Czechoslovakia, but that was Czechoslovakia. It mm. wasn't Germany. Mm-hmm. Bell was a, you know, I have to come to the defence of Colin Bell for obvious reasons, mm. but Bell was a very fine player. And the idea that, that, that somehow we lost the game because Bell came on for Charlton is nonsense. Mm. Young people say to me, well, this Colin Bell that they keep going on about, what was he like? And I say, just watch Kevin De Bruyne. You know, yes. That's exactly what he was. Very much so. Alf was very well prepared for that game in many ways. They had the nutrition sorted. If you remember, there's the famous story that they got, you know, endless baked beans sent in cans down to Mexico. And they also had beef burgers. And some idiot boasted that they were doing this, that they were so well prepared. And the Mexicans stopped them importing raw beef. And the team doctor who had ordered everything had to go down to the dock to see these supplies guaranteed to take people through the whole World Cup being tipped into the water by the dockside. It must have been heartbreaking for them because they'd done the job, but they were very, and I think this is my next question to both of you, Mm. England were very, very unpopular. Mm -hmm. Why? Don't let us forget that we didn't bother with the World Cup until 1950. (laughs) You know, we by right, got four sides qualifying. I mean, it's still an anomaly. We are supposedly a nation comprised of four countries, all of whom have their separate representation in FIFA. That's not the case in other countries. You know, the Soviet Union were the Soviet Union. They didn't have a Ukraine side. And Yugoslavia was Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia as well, which was made up of Serbia, Croatia, Montenegro, Slovenia. And so on and so on. We were the only ones. And we're also the colonial era. There was a lot of resentment at that stage from a lot of nations about the way we treated our colonies. Yes, that's absolutely true. I think you also have to look at what happened in the 1960s. There was not only 1966 where Alf Ramsey talked about animals in the context of the Argentine players, but then after that, the World Club Championship started and there were terrible scenes involving (laughs) clashes of culture, you might say, involving Mm. Manchester United in 1968. Bush Best was sent off, wasn't he? Yeah, and before that, Celtic had played in it, and there had been terrible, terrible things. Well, of course, they probably thought Celtic were an English club, 
which is terribly unfair, not even Scottish. There were all these horrible incidents involving Latin American countries and Britain. And then the Manchester United one, where Matt Busby said, oh, we won't let what Doc Steen happened to him. We'll do it right. And he even arranged a banquet in which the players of both sides could mingle and it would take the heat out of it and it would be a lovely game. And, <laughs> and the players of Estudiantes didn't turn up for the banquet. So it just made it worse. So that was the background. And I think, you know, the English people used to, I, they don't anymore so much, but they used to refer to Germans as arrogant. And always used to make me laugh because everybody else thinks the English are arrogant. And all those factors rolled into one, made them very, very unpopular. And it's even to this day, a little of that sort of, who do they think they are, persists. I want to add, I'm very fond of David Bernstein, who at one point, having left Manchester City, became chairman of the FA. Well, I'm not surprised. For a football board director, he's a remarkably civilised human being. Very civilised man. What he said about greeting dignitaries from other nations, he said it was so extraordinarily different. When they came to Wembley, Every you know, all nations almost behaved with enormous respect and gratitude, and it's the home of football. And they had enormous respect for, for Wembley and English football and the mother of the game and all that. But if you went to their place for the return leg, you got a completely different attitude towards England. Then they become the colonial power and the arrogance, mm. which hadn't been visible when the match had taken place at Wembley. He said he was just like two completely different people. It was war movies, I suspect. We were all brought up on war movies. Mm -hmm. The Dambusters won numerous awards. That was about an event where umpteen innocent Polish prisoners of war were drowned. Not to mention a load of German civilians who had little to do with the war. And yet the emphasis in the film was on the... 15 or so British airmen who died. I'm not belittling that, but I'm saying the end of the film when uh, Richard Todd says he's got to go off... Write a few letters. Write a few letters. And Michael Redgrave says, well, I don't know if I'd ever let this happen if I'd known that 15 Englishmen were going to die or something. Well, what about the um, thousands of others? When was that film made? 1954. For goodness sake, that's nine years after the end of the bloody war. They're still making propaganda films. There was still a general attitude of triumphalism against German people, which persisted for an unbelievable... I mean, that was nine years after the end of the war. What was Piers Morgan doing, putting that front page of Achtung and dressing Stuart Pearce in a German helmet and all that? Exactly. I mean, we we used to make jokes about the Japanese guys getting found in the jungle and still thinking the war was on. What about the people of our country, half of whom were still fighting it in, you know, 1970? Well, you know why? Because we won. Basically, yeah, we yeah. won. It was something for us to remember. History is written by the victors. I remember Tony Woodcock, who transferred from Nottingham Forest in 1980 mm. to Cologne. Mm. And in his first interview in Germany, mm. he came out of it and he said, you know what? I said, I like going to the cinema. And they said to me, what sort of films do you like? And I almost said war films. Oh, he didn't say it, of course. He had that awareness. Tony, a very intelligent, bright guy who learned how to speak German and absorbed their culture. 
the first player that I took abroad. Going back to the 1970 World Cup quarterfinal, mm. if talking about Germany, I mean, what clearly happens is there's a sense of we was robbed, we were dead unlucky, we should have won. There is no mention of Germany coming back from 2-0 down to win 3-2 in extra time, which if you're German, you must think is one of the great triumphs. I mean, guts, determination and skill. They lasted longer. Their stamina was greater than ours. Mm. And they won it fair and square. And we struggled against them then for a lot of years after that. And we forget that was the birth of the great German side. It was the end of the Uwe Zieler era. Mm. But that was Beckenbauer, who played a bit in 66. He was a more mature player in 70. He Mm. was a top player then. And Gert Muller emerged. And Well, two years later on, we thought, here's a rematch. We're at Wembley. We're going to stuff them. And we got yeah. hammered with Gunter Netzer. Gunter Netzer was brilliant. And so that was a very good German side. It was part of the English decline. I mean, it is a great rivalry, the England-Germany football rivalry. But until recently, it was always too overlaid with other things for my taste. I'm, I hope I'm not being anti-English here, but I've never known a nation that has more rivalries than England. They have a rivalry with France. You know, our former prime minister, Liz Truss, actually thought she was getting points by saying, I don't know whether they're a friend or a foe. They've got the rivalry with Australia, with Scotland, with Germany, with Argentina. They've got antagonistic, admittedly humorously antagonistic relationships with more countries than any other country I can think of. But this is a product, is it not, of the fact that we actually, as a nation, were pretty good at inventing and exporting and popularising sports. Yes. If you look at football, oh, the best, it yeah. is true. The reason that there is a Newell's old boys side, yeah. the reason that Juventus play in black and white, the reason that it is athletic Bilbao, not Atletico. And often back kickers in Germany. And the young boys of Bern and so on. And why are Milan called Milan, not Milano? Correct. They were a product of empire, or in the case of football, more of trade, actually, around the world. And all these coaches that worked abroad in the first place at Barcelona and at Bilbao and so on, all these places, English coaches went there and taught them how to play in a different fashion. A few years ago, there was that wonderful film that Dennis Waterman, the late Dennis Waterman, did about the first World Cup, which was invented by the Lipton's tea man. Yes. And it was won wonderfully by West West Auckland. West Auckland, yeah. Who beat the Italians. And in consequence, several of the West Auckland players, who were amateurs, mostly minors, yeah were asked to go out, and some of them, I believe, did go out and play. They in played Italy. again in the second World Cup. You're quite right. Yeah, yeah, great. After 1970, where we felt something had gone wrong, as opposed to Zalfa, and 72, when we, again, were roundly beaten by Germany in the Euros of the time, we still had the chance to get back where we belong, in inverted commas, in the 73 season, but because 74 World Cup was taking place in Europe this time, so we wouldn't have the heat problem. We didn't make it because we had this disastrous game against... We we actually dropped points against Wales that we shouldn't have done, Mm. which put us in a bad position, but we just had to win Mm -hmm. the last game at home, at Wembley, the fortress Wembley, against an ordinary Polish side. I would take issue, though, that it wasn't an ordinary Poland team at all. It was a Poland team that was about to become one of the best 
in the world. Yeah. A goalkeeper who, by the way, says I had loads of games better than that. It's just that every time they shot, it hit me. They were considered ordinary at that time, Colin, but I think it's fair to say that they developed into a team that won bronze medals at two World Cups in the 1970s. Yes, no, no, I'm not disrespecting them. I'm simply saying that the amount of pressure that England brought to bear yes. on that Polish defence was so overwhelming. It oh, seemed it was. improbable. They could have, the they could have scored a dozen. Exactly. And we all felt, I think, a sense of the end of days because... That was effectively the end of Ramsey. It took another six months for him to be fired. Mm. But that was the end of Ramsey. It was the end of that whole era. But it took us 12 years to get back to the World Cup in 1982. And I asked myself, and I asked you, why did it take so long for England to recover their former glory if they indeed a lot of things had changed in football in the 70s you mentioned the hooliganism football became not a very nice place our players were not as well paid as the ones from abroad kevin keegan went to germany to get a lot better money tony wilcock doubled his money when he went from nottingham forest who won the league and the european cup to germany our grounds were terrible at that point in comparison with the grounds abroad Mm. and so on. The game hadn't come to terms with television yet. But all those things apply to every other nation. No, I don't think they did. I can remember when Tony went to Germany, many, many more games were on television. The grounds were much, much better. The training ground at Cologne was fabulous in contrast with what he experienced at Nottingham Forest and so on. Our game had not invested in itself in the good years, either immediately after the war or certainly after the 66 World Cup. Not many grounds were renewed, you know. And that's very true. And also, we struggled for, and when I say we, I mean England, struggled for an identity, as is shown by the lurch from one kind of manager to another. You know, when Don Reavy, you know, the overlord of methodical skillful football when he didn't work the next minute you find yourself with graham taylor who believes in direct football so-called direct football and we ended up hiring foreigners there was just a complete lack of identity that england didn't attempt to address time for a personal confession here gents i haven't said this to you before and i feel that perhaps, you know, I'm revealing a bit more of myself than I perhaps ought to. In 1998, when we got knocked out of the World Cup by Argentina, I remember feeling the usual feelings of disappointment and despair and upset and a feeling of being cheated. There was some mm. something had happened that we had a goal disallowed yeah, yeah, yeah. by Sol Campbell that, was, yes. that should have been scored and didn't. By 2002, when we lost in the quarterfinal to Brazil with a great goal by Ronaldinho, mm. I didn't care. I had lost it. Somewhere between 1998 and 2002, Mm. I did not care what happened to England, and I still don't. Mm. And I don't know quite if I can specify the moment when it happened, but it happened between those two dates. I think by that point, league football and club football had grown a bit again. In 1990, we had a terrific side. Yes. That side that unluckily lost to Germany on penalties was a pretty good side and almost certainly would have won the final if they got there because Argentina had got most of their players were either injured or suspended. We had Beardsley, we had Barnes, we had Lineker. We had Shilton, who was the best goalkeeper in the world at that point. We did go back after that, I think, 
But the whole thing of England had gone a bit by that point because club football had taken over. The Premier League was then on TV and so on. But the period prior to 1986 was Lineker's first World Cup. And that was an exciting World Cup mm. because we started badly in that. And then we had that amazing game against Poland and then we won. And we were unlucky to lose to Argentina, despite the fact that Argentina were brilliant. The Lineker still doesn't know to this day how his header in the last minute didn't equalise after Barnes had come on a sub and taken them on and crossed brilliantly. And if you remember, mm. Lineker appeared at the fast post, headed it, and the guy came from almost underneath him mm. and stopped the ball going I think in. They headed it it, I think they headed it at the same time. It, you could not get Correct. closer to scoring a goal. I sat and watched that with Gary. We replayed it seven, eight times mm. to work out what exactly had happened mm. because he felt as he went for that ball, if you remember, he'd already scored off one Barnes right, cross right. a couple of minutes previously. And at that point, Barnes was running riot on the he left. Was. And Lineker was in top goal scoring form again. He won the golden boot. You know, he was scoring goals all over the place. How on earth that guy got into that position to stop that going, we couldn't work out. And he went for it thinking, this is goal. So to answer your question, there were plenty of likeable teams in the era you're describing, where your disaffection, Colin, grew. The era you're talking about was an era in which the England fans became more and more visible. They weren't the relatively anonymous and unexpressive people who just went to watch the games in 1966 and who watched the games in 1970 from their living rooms. They were people who thought they were representing England. You're referring to the people who rampage through Shaw. Right? Yes, yeah. I am exactly right. doing that. I travelled through work with England supporters for a long, long time. And it wasn't a nice experience, even when they were behaving. You're absolutely right. And we go back to where we and a lot of people of our era fell in love with football. It was the sense of community. Yes. And you're quite right. It was the fans and that sort of thing that churned people off watching England. Yeah. It certainly turned me yeah. off. It was what John was saying about this is our experience of middle-class boys walking yeah. into a working-class environment for the first time through football. And I always felt for, you know, for the first 55 years of my life that I could talk to anybody about football and yeah. and they would drop their knives and their grenades and whatever they do. And we'd just <laughs> have a discussion about, about football. And I don't feel that anymore. Yeah. And I'm very sad, but I mean, I, I genuinely don't feel that anymore. And although I think you're absolutely right, both of you, that the English hooligan behaviour and the colonial arrogance plays into it, it's a sense that the country itself loses its marbles when it gets into a major tournament. And I don't feel part of it anymore. I just feel they've gone bonkers and I'm not part of this. Bear in mind, Colin, before we leave this subject, before we wrap up, we are talking about a bygone era. I think things are better now at the time we are speaking than during the period you talked about when all the things we are saying were true. I think that what you might call the Southgate era has been a healthier era for English. Well, what about the Euro final? I'm sorry, Southgate and the England team have conducted themselves really well. Yes. And I actually don't think throughout the era there's been an England team that have behaved badly no. at any point. I'm afraid it's the fans that behave badly. 
And I don't think that that has changed that much. I would like to think, Paddy, that you're right on that. But no, that Euro final was one of the worst experiences I've had in football in my life. Yeah, fair enough. I, I, was, try, I was trying not to be a troublesome Scot. Well, Paddy and John, thank you very much indeed. I really think it's been a very fascinating discussion that so many people listening to this podcast will appreciate because they'll have almost identical feelings. So thank you, Paddy. It's good night from Paddy. Good night. And it's good night from John. All good morning. <laughs> all good morning. And we hope to see you all again next time on Football Ruin My Life. We'll be back. Yeah.